Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello, out there. I like to walk at night, and the reason why is going to sound creepy, though I suppose if something sounds creepy, it probably just is. The reason I walk at night is that I like to catch glimpses of what people are up to through their windows from the street. I'm not skulking up with my pants unbuckled puppet show at your bedroom window just reefing on her, no. Nothing like that. Just a glimpse as I stroll by. It's like walking through a living art gallery. Every scene is backlit. The subjects can't see you, aren't aware of you, so they act perfectly natural. Most scenes are identical. A TV glows in a dark living room. Elongated human shadows maybe shift on a wall. But once in a while I'll glimpse something truly special. Like an elderly couple sat down at their dining table working a puzzle together. This kind of thing is what I hope to glimpse. Though I'd be lying if I said it's what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is the dirty truth. Something we each hide constantly every moment we're exposed. We manipulate it, warp it, project an image, one that is laid out a little more bare through your bay window at 8.55 p.m. perhaps, while I'm out there hunting snapshots of it from the road. Again, from the road. I'm always relieved to capture nothing nefarious with my glimpses, like with the old couple, who so easily put the pieces together, together. The light is warm, the walls cluttered with a lifetime's worth of knickknacks. The old dears always seem so content. If I slow enough, it's near certain that one will raise a cup of tea to their lips. And for me, that is just the best. Nothing better. I don't even bother to glimpse another scene, I just walk home happy. Unless I have yet to pass the estate house. The estate bothers me. It's a large brick home with a witch's tower, back behind a gate and on a long dirt driveway that winds through a small orchard to the gardens. Gardens meticulously maintained by the home's captive. There's only ever one light on, beaming from a large, tear-shaped window, from what looks to be an attic, peering out over the canopy of craggy apple trees. A third eye that seems to say, I see you, seeing me. Peekaboo, Shadow Man. Get away from my gate. On one occasion, I witnessed the window wink when the mystery that lives there crossed like an eclipse, maybe having spotted me staring at the gate 
and meaning to scare me off. If so, it worked. Two stories below the forever lit window is an alcoved entryway, the snout of the old pig. The witch's tower hangs from the side like a snorkel and is shrouded in ivy, as are the lower floors, giving the face of the estate an ancient feel, as if it had been underwater for centuries and had recently re-emerged. Locals say it's haunted, of course. I've heard that the man inside lost his wife to a fall down the stairs, that her name was Rose, and that's why he grows so many, that he never leaves the house except through summer to tend the garden, that it seems these days that the house owns him. I used to stop and stare on my night walk. I couldn't help myself. But ever since the window winked, I can't look. I just take my glimpse and keep it moving. The house does the looking, like all such places seem to do. Big places with big secrets. Places that feel more alive than their gaunt residents whom occasionally make it out into the morning sun to stroll dazedly through the roses. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a Tier 13 exclusive. Mulberry House. Sixty-five Mulberry Street in Quitman, Arkansas, has an unconventional lawn ornament out front. It's a for sale sign, one that comes down every couple of years only to return in fresh paint. And the reason why is pretty simple. The residence it's staked in front of is allegedly haunted. History for the large, charming, yellow-sided former estate begins in 1890 when a man named Benjamin Jackson decided to have built what would be one of the finest homes in the small town of Quitman, one that would stand proudly for centuries, always with some lineage of the Jackson family housed within. And perhaps the dream lives, in phantasmic fashion, but in reality it all fell apart for Benjamin. His wife died at the age of 28, then their only child Joseph was killed at the very end of World War I. The house held the living ghost of Benjamin Jackson for a while, but without his wife, his son, there was likely little reason to stay. These days, a major piece of the lore surrounding Mulberry House is that of a spectral figure in military dress. A previous owner of the home claims that he'd see a young man in uniform staring at him from a hallway attached to the foyer while he watched TV in the living room. Curious-like. Other claims involve the usual. Cold spots, footsteps, sudden noises in the night... One of the more chilling claims, to a total pussy like me that is, is that there's an overwhelming sense that someone else is in the house when you're living there. And that's not a big selling point for me. I already think that there's child molesters in the treehouse and home invaders patrolling the block, deterred only by my midnight and 3am light switches. I don't need a lost military boy looking for his parents out there knocking over the Tiffany, turning on the Samsung. That's happened here, in my own house. TV comes on in the middle of the night, loud. I shoot up with a diaper full, pull a hamstring, blow up my back. No, thanks. No more of that. I don't need any more of that, please. I don't need to invite it. Here's how a recent listing was cleverly written to include the well-known reputation of the home. Quote, All the character and charm of Old Town equipment is found here. Very few like this one remain. Old world charm intact. You must get inside to really appreciate all the beauty and history this home has to offer. Once owned by a prominent Quitman family with lots of history. 
end quote. Did you catch all that? They uh, pound the idea of history. There are at least four veiled statements in that small paragraph I compiled from the listing. Old town equipment, old town charm intact, beauty and history, lots of history. In another listing, they just went for it, stating, quote, Turn of the century home with all the charm and history that goes with it. End quote. All the history that goes with it. I read that the house went for sixty-eight grand in 2012, even though it was priced at 140. If you look at the photos of Mulberry House, you'll be surprised by how nice it is. Despite my fears, I really do feel like I wouldn't be able to pass this up if I lived in Quitman. It's a beautiful six-bed, three-bath home, Victorian, close to a lake. And the constant for sale and reduced signs that advertise the place are just kind of sad. Also kind of scary. Like, is this a for real haunted house? Like, are they sure? Are they... Are they absolutely certain? Are you sure? I just rang your doorbell because I have a couple questions for you. Are you sure? Mulberry House recently sold this summer of 2021 in late June for close to 200k. I think it'll be fun to check in on the listing over the years to see if it continues to pop up. But anyways, enough of that. I guess you should tell the story. After the tragic end to the original family's tenure at Mulberry House, the residents sat abandoned. An empty shell, except for the ghost of a young soldier, perhaps. An abandoned house is a sad thing. I'm a big believer in the personality of a home being the past energy produced within by its humans. It's maybe a childish thought, but every upgrade we make to my own home seems to please the energy of the house somehow. When we put in the furnace and central air, the ductwork, it felt as though the house suddenly had lungs. The heart is in our living room, the mind in the attic, where our conversations, shouts, and laughter accumulate over the years, echoing above and absorbing back down through the wood frame to be remembered forever in some way, it feels. It's hard to explain. It's also hard to leave a place you have history in. Especially when you believe it to be, or picture it to be sentient or alive in some way. Maybe I'll just stay here, become immortal. Maybe the only way to stay on Earth is to attach yourself in some way to a home. Put in enough time and energy in one place. Become tethered to it. Maybe I should see a doctor. Alright, let's get into the meat of this story. And the main reason many consider Mulberry House to be one of Arkansas's most legendary haunts. After the sad and tragic end to the original family's tenure, the sprawling Victorians sat abandoned on the corner of Mulberry and Third until 1951, when Floyd and Aline Bettis moved in, and soon after, in 1953, welcomed a baby boy to share Mulberry with them. Unfortunately, this boy, whom they named Jarrell Floyd Bettis, would grow to become a monstrous bully, unwilling to share with anyone. Jarrell, also known as Gerard, was a terror from the start. In school, the only child would be teased for his unusual size as well as his unusual behavior. Being teased was something he seemed to provoke as a means to gain attention, and maybe as a form of masochism. It's been my own experience that some masochists seem to invite abuse as a way to fuel up on hatred. Hatred that they'll later dole out on those even weaker than they. And young Gerald it's well known, was a prolific abuser of the weak. A sadist. Probably a sadomasochist, in short. I took the scenic route there. This story has the feeling of being old, 
like 1930s old. Something about it plays in black and white in my mind. But this chapter is fairly recent. Recent enough to have living witnesses to what Gerald was to Quitman, and eventually to the legend of Mulberry House. He was known as the Dog Boy because he collected stray dogs and cats, animals that could be heard screeching and yelping once behind the large wooden mouth of Mulberry. This was in the 60s, early 70s, that the Dog Boy was clearly torturing animals in the house we've come to see. And if anybody passing by, say on a late-night stroll during the Dog Boy's reign at Mulberry, glimpsed a pair of glowing eyes in a window, they wouldn't have looked twice. They all knew what was in there, and all that could be done was wait for it to someday leave. But the dog boy never left. He instead grew into a hulking 6'4", 330-pound slab of menace that took absolute control of his parents' home, locking them in the attic at times and barely feeding or watering them. Dog boy had a sunroom built to grow weed in and sold it as a way to make money. He continued filling the home with strays that he'd routinely torture and eventually kill, burying or burning them in the yard by some reports, or simply throwing the smaller of his furry victims in the trash. Nobody much cared about this practice. Sure, it was fucked up that if your pet went missing equipment at this time, your first thought probably was shit. The dog boy got him. But what were you going to do about it? Knock on the door? Nobody wanted to even glance at Mulberry, let alone walk up to it. When relatives went to check in on the Bettises, an uncle of Dog Boy asked a neighbor to borrow his gun for the task. The house was a prison, and Dog Boy had appointed himself warden. Sometime in the mid-70s, old man Bettis was thrown through a second-floor window by his now 20-something spawn of Satan. The 67-year-old managed to keep from tumbling off the roof and called out for help, kicking at the thick arm of Dog Boy that sprouted from the house's broken eye attempting to swipe his father off until police arrived to stifle the madness spilling from Mulberry House. Years later, in 1981, old man Bettis would die in the home after falling down the stairs. Many believe he was likely pushed. Only a year later, Dog Boy's mother took her own tumble down the stairs, breaking a hip. While recovering in hospital, Dog Boy paid his escaped captive a visit and a nurse overheard him threatening the poor woman even slapping her around with his big hairy paws, saying she'd be sorry if she told anyone what had happened. The nurse reported her observations to the local police, and finally something was done about Dog Boy. He was arrested for the mistreatment of his mother, obvious by the padlocked room upstairs, as well as the way the entire house had been turned into a den of depravity. Animal feces, animal bones, and decaying carcasses. But more disturbing than all of this... The little grow-up for marijuana truly undid the reign of Dog Boy at 65 Mulberry Street. He was put in prison for growing and distributing marijuana and soon died of an apparent drug overdose in prison at the age of 34. His mother would go on to live at Mulberry, hopefully in peace until she died in the late 90s, and the house began making for sale signs fashionable thereafter. Mulberry House was always thought to be haunted, even before Jarrell Floyd Bettis turned it into his personal doghouse. But through the 2000s, and up even until as recently as 2017, paranormal investigators and those brave enough to have purchased the inexplicably cheap, historic beauty claim to have experienced terrifying things while in the home. Poltergeist activity, such as building materials during renovations going missing, 
two-by-four standing on end when one man re-entered the attic after taking a break from his work. Pennies floating down the stairs in one claim. Toilets flushing, lights flickering, cupboards opening. Medicine going missing. Pranks, it seems. Things like glasses going missing or keys. The place is a real pain in the ass to live in, apparently. Something is always malfunctioning. One couple that was given a tour of Mulberry while considering buying the place said that a recliner chair tilted back, giving the impression that someone had sat down in it and was appraising them as they appraised the home. Multiple accounts have stated that a pair of glowing eyes can often be seen at the top floor window. Besides being enormous, hairy, and having a penchant for collecting stray dogs to brutalize, the dog boy of Quitman was said to have had the most unusual eyes. Eyes that seemed to glow in the dark, like a cat's or a dog's. There have been a few claims that the apparition of the dog boy has walked through the home, stood staring at a window, large and hulking, long brown hair, glowing eyes, a cat cradled in his arms being roughly stroked. One medium that entered the home claimed that a large man was demanding that everyone get out of his house. Anyways, I'm just sharing the legend, the rumors, the claims, the gossip of Mulberry House. The history, too. Though, like with any given place, we'll never know all of it. What it was like to live in, say, a place like Mulberry for a long period of time, while the energy soaked into the floorboards and framework, while the house settled into a routine of having innocent animals tortured and killed within, while a slobbering beast held his parents captive in the mind of Mulberry. But we took a glimpse, didn't we? And for such places a glimpse is often enough to take the picture before hightailing it down the block and back home before it takes you. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere without having to rely on smoking or vaping. 
Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in two milligrams and three milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog. With my little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash dark topic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com Hi, buddy. Hey, it's the time stories. A sad bowl of soup. I like to think of Earth as a proving ground, a farm league, somewhere for souls to qualify themselves in a controlled environment, an environment controlled by the fact that none of us has any clue as to why we're here, and no real reason to behave or be what's considered a good person, other than that it's safer to be good. Though if we want to think deeper, to be truly good means having to put yourself at risk in the interest of others, or the interest of an idea, a cause. To stand still and do no wrong isn't necessarily good. In fact, it may just be not bad or cowardly. It's complicated, the unknown, unwritten rules of this proving ground, but if it is what I think it is, then it is pivotal, crucial, to keep us subjects blind to the experiment, 
It's the only way to get genuine results, to figure out who's worthy, truly worthy, of whatever could be next. Some of us seem to think that this is a free-for-all, that this life is ripe to be plundered if you just ignore the internal signals, the whispers that come in the form of feelings such as guilt or pity. Some of us are defective, maybe, incapable of such feelings. We think it's strange when another human shows empathy, think it phony, contrived uh, technique of manipulation that we in turn mimic as appearing normal brings us closer to a target. It helps us to gain trust, something that's needed in order to eventually control, deceive, take from another. The use of the word we, that's no mistake. It's just slippery wording. We're, we're all defective. The challenge is to fix ourselves as we go become pure through good work, self-analysis, self-monitoring, malformation of our terrified, survival-addled minds that maintain. We're not used to this. We used to be looking up for big old birds to come down and swipe our children away. We stay paranoid, naturally. But in this plump, fat, easy, sit-on-the-couch, watch-TV, look-at-Netflix, play-video-game age... It's a strange transition we're trying to make here, and we got some glitches, no doubt. Only God knows. Or if you hate that idea concept, then how about only each of us individually knows what our intent is, what is at the heart of our drive, what, what we are. How much of our individual moral fiber is pure or processed than posed in the spirit of simply fitting in? Bad people are born. Bad people are made. Both. Sure. It's not really that interesting a debate. We are each our own bowl of soup. But above everything, bad people and good choose to be so for the same reason. Because it's satisfying to give in or resist base desires. There are just more rewards and resistance. It's more valuable to resist. It's the same as how eating a bag of candy tastes good then feels bad. Resisting feels bad, but tastes good later. Like simmered soup the worst though the absolute weakest flavor spiceless is a life lived without decisiveness taking it as it comes until the lights go out and your soul saunters away with its hands in its pockets to a haunt a house it used to live in like a fucking loser that's how I think of ghosts it's fucking losers you know people who just can't give stuff up they just can't leave they don't know when to leave the party they just collect things in their home and think that they're the only people living on earth. They, they see pieces of land as their own property. Nothing's ours. We're visitors. Time to go. That's why when I feel a ghost around or sense something, and, you know, give me a break here, but I've, I've felt it, I just don't respect it. I say, hey, stupid, this is my place now. Go away. There's probably a better place you could be if you just let go. You fucking loser ghost. You would think that a bad or so-called evil person would be full of regret, guilt, self-loathing, but no, it's not always the case. Truly horrible people are at peace inside because they are being what they are, what maybe we all are at our core. Selfish, mindless scum reaching around voraciously, blindly for something to stuff in our mouths on the shore of a primeval lagoon. From the summer of 2004 until the winter of 2011, one such single-minded creature, a juvenile inmate, 
haunted the halls of a Canadian prairie detention center not far from where I live. He'd furiously masturbate to the backs of female guards in his time there. He'd mutter threats of the vicious rape spree he vowed to endeavor upon once inevitably set free. He'd openly brag about the impressively terrible things he managed to accomplish in such a short, depraved life. The young man, 14, at the time of his incarceration, cannot be named. For his heinous crime, he can only be contained a maximum of six years. So, until his 21st birthday, this big sloppy pizza dough pale galoot had to be basically grounded. Forced to vent his depraved amusement and the harassment of guards, terrorization of fellow inmates by way of pulling out and stroking off his baloney pony all over keyboards during class, something he managed to enjoy doing while watching porn after discovering the internet password and downloading a bunch of nasty clips to a USB stick. I have this information from somebody on the inside, and that's why you're hearing this story today, and that's what you'll come to expect from Tier 13, or the stories that are a little dicey for me to tell publicly. And I'll use uh, terms like baloney pony, you're welcome. (laughs) This young man is as bad as he wants to be. Already behind bars and serving a finite sentence, there's not a whole lot anyone can do about an insufferable, remorseless psychopath when he's a young Canadian. They can talk to him, sure. They can limit his privileges, fine. But they can't cut his dick off or glue his hands to his hips. So his cell is given a wide berth for fear of something shooting out of it and retribution for even the tamest of punishments. Sorry, you can't call them punishments. For reprimands? Discipline? Is that too harsh, the word discipline? I don't want to offend anybody. Now, you got to be careful these days. People are delicate, frail even. But you just wait. When a dark fog rolls back over the world like it did back in the mid-6th century, after a volcano blew in Iceland, and they thought that God had decided to put us to bed, this woke mob will sleep. They'll roll up tight in their blankie and weep until the sun comes back and they can grow some onions again to fucking cry over. Frail, that's a good word for it. Weak is too triggering, no doubt, but frail, that nails it. A frail society, weakened in part by its sedentary approach to, uh, dare I say it, punishment, true discipline. Frail, like this nameless juvenile offender's grandmother had been when he murdered her. What was her name again? What was her name again? Oh yeah, we'll never know, uh, because to learn her name would lead up to his name, and can't have that. Can't have anyone knowing the horrible things this young man has done for fear of his future being affected negatively. Right. Well, then I guess for this dead time story, we'll have to just work with what I've heard from those who met this nameless young man before he disappeared out into the world to do God knows what. God knows who. We'll have to hang up behind this tier 13 paywall together and get down to it. Get down to what one 14-year-old kid, now in his 30s and living probably an hour and a half away from me, was capable of, yet not held truly culpable for. He's out there, somewhere, today, and the silence around his name, for him at least, might truly be golden. There was this newspaper article back in 2011, and then nothing. The headline read, quote, Winnipeg man who killed, defiled, and sexually assaulted grandmother to be released next week. End quote. 
It was just after Christmas, just before New Year's. Nobody even noticed. And if they did, they didn't want to think about it. But even if they had, there was no further information. This is how it goes. Everywhere, I assume, but especially out here in Canada, where the benefit of the doubt is written in bold, capitals, within the law when it comes to kids and the mentally ill. But mentally ill kids, teenagers, oh boy, jackpot. That's what you want to be out here. You'd think they never had a chance. We're completely helpless to commit whatever crime occurred to them, even the one that I'm finally going to share with you now, in full detail thanks to said anonymous source. You can keep a secret, right? You can handle some of the off-the-record info, no? I trust you. I have to. This is tier 13. This is the good stuff, the weird shit. And besides, I have a trick or two up my sleeve as well when it comes to, when it comes to revealing what's in the shade of silence. The trick is to change your own name and pose as a storyteller, twist a few events slightly, Make them less than what they actually are. Never more. All right. Grab a blankie. Pour something warm into a mug or something cold into a glass and let's cut the shit. Fort Gary, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Summer, 2004. In the heart of Winnipeg, one of the most murderous cities in all of Canada, is born a true crime tale that no one will hear outside of Tier 13. Some stories just don't make the cut, while others that have maybe less bloody meat on the bone flourish in the imagination of the public. Think Jeffrey Epstein and his horny old man's service. Disturbing. Absolutely. Wrong. Fucked up, of course. But I can't help thinking to myself as I watch it unfold that there is worse we could be shedding light on. That people are maybe sort of kinda enjoying a case like the Epstein phenomena. We tend to latch on to terrible things that are terribly intriguing more than just flat-out terrible. People are happy with an Epstein-style story because of the mystery, because the girls are young but not egregiously young. Illegal, yes. Manipulated, of course. But we're not talking kids being kidnapped and passed around an underground pedophile ring until they become invaluable and are snuffed. We're not talking five-year-olds kept in closets attached to IVs and treated like miniature live sex dolls. Shout out Wesley Allen Dodd. You can't put that in the front page of People. Not a whole lot of hits for TMZ with a story that depraved. We want our crime palatable. So, stories like the one I'm about to serve up. Stay off the menu. Our protected subject is 14 years old when the horror kicks off. He is a moody teenager without a father in the picture. He's one of those sullen, fuck you mom types. To quote that douchebag Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit quote... Some days you don't want to wake up. Everything is fucked. Everybody socks. You know the type. What they might call an incel these days. Unattractive. Inside and out. Bitter towards a world he rejects out of the assumption that it will never accept him. Durst. We will call him Durst going forward. Because no one knows what it's like to be the bad man. To be the sad man. Behind blue eyes, and a guy ripped that song off from The Who and completely missed the fucking point, but I digress. I mean, behind blue eyes, no one knows what it's like to be the bad man, all that shit. Durst takes it literally, and The Who, you know, they're talking about, in my opinion, being 
disconnected and completely selfish and self-absorbed. Everybody misses the point of behind blue eyes. Even myself, possibly. I mean, what it should be about is some douchebag who's got these blue eyes and, you know, he's been the bad man and taken advantage of people and, you know, used people up and banged a bunch of chicks with his good looks and had friends just tossed at him and people maybe dragging money out of him or maybe him dragging money out of people by through manipulation because of who he is. How do you feel sorry for a guy like who, who's the head of uh, The Who or, or Fred Durst, the head of Limp Biscuit? How do you feel sorry for a guy like that? Oh, behind my beautiful blue eyes and all the pain that's been caused as a result of me getting every fucking thing I wanted in my life, bro. Oh, you have no fucking idea how tough this shit can be. Yeah, it appears like I got fucking everything, but in the end, I don't appreciate it, so I feel sad, so you feel sad for me. Behind blue eyes, go fuck yourself. Especially Durst, so anyways, back to it. Durst is being pawned off by his mother onto his grandma for a week in this summer, June of 2004. Durst is desperate to start doing something, anything. His older brother's in jail, his dad's not around, his mom can't stand him, and the kids at school don't respect the arrogant, big-boned boy with the mean, pale stare. He doesn't fit in. He only wants to be left alone to eat and play video games and jerk off. Fuck everything. He's fat and ugly. He's angry and bored. What is this life? What's the point of any of this shit? It's with this mindset that Durst walks into his 79-year-old grandmother's house following the finale to his first excruciating year of high school and quickly decides that this summer he's going to do what he wants. And what he wants is to get in touch with the slovenly pig he can sense he needs to be in order to achieve a sense of individuality. A sense that he isn't a nothing. He's different. He's something. Something horrible, sure, but still. Something. When Grandma finally gives him some lip on the first night, Durst decides that the festivities have begun, that his inner beast has been summoned to birth, and if he rejects its arrival, then he might as well be nothing. He might as well just be that kid who wears the same sweater every fucking day to hide his tits, even when it's hot out. He deserves that fate if he doesn't unleash the poison he carries deep in his gut. That same first night, Durst walks into Grandma's room as she sleeps and smothers her with a pillow. It's not easy. It's extremely violent and intense, actually. Grandma fights like hell as if she knew this was coming. She claws at Durst, tears at his arms attempts to turn over and suck some air from an indent in the mattress, but Durst is too strong, too committed, too excited about the whole ordeal. The more she fights, the harder he presses down. Durst has finally found something he's good at, being relentless. When she finally dies, Durst removes the pillow and stares fascinated at her corpse. She's gone. Body's still here, but man, look at those empty eyes, that mouth like a sinkhole. She's fucking gone. No trumpets, no beam of light, no magic. 80 years on earth and he just took it. In less than three minutes. He feels power. For the first time in his life, Durst feels formidable. And his dick grows hard as a result. It pokes up through his sweatpants like an exclamation point with two dots. Like a bad idea. 
Durst loses his virginity to a corpse. He rapes his dead grandmother a lot over the next four days, taking breaks to play video games and eat everything in the fridge and cupboards. Durst feels light. For the first time in his life, he feels alive, though the scene couldn't be much ghastlier. These four days in the summer of 2004 are to be the most cherished of his life. He did something. He did something most people can't do. And now he really wants to make this special. Durst finds some gold spray paint and uses it to coat the corpse, doll Grim up a bit, change gears a little. Durst is full of brain cell popping lust and orgasms that seem to last forever as a result of raping the golden corpse of his granny in every imaginable way. But on the fourth day, when the food runs low and he's forced to eat a sad bowl of soup, he decides it's time to come down from the dizzying height of the psychotic mania he's managed to reach and maintain for days and calls his mother to come get him. Durst begins to feel a little bad. The fun is over. He's been banging his grandma. Ugh. He's been banging his dead grandmother. His dead grandmother who he covered in gold paint to spice things up a little. He's been engaged in something most people would kill themselves over if they were given the option to rather than proceed with what he'd done for 80-odd hours, 80 extremely-odd hours. Something is wrong with Durst. Something has snapped. Thank God he's just a kid with a whole life in front of him, regardless. There's a dog in the house. He attempts to get that magic feeling back by poisoning it with antifreeze. Maybe he fucks it before he lights it on fire. His mother arrives and finds her son sitting dazedly on Grandma's sofa. He tells her he drank some antifreeze, too, along with the dog. He says he wouldn't mind going to McDonald's. Where's Grandma? Oh, I put her in the closet. And now, today, right now, where's Durst? Well, after representing himself in court unnecessarily, maybe fancying himself the next Ted Bundy, Durst was released. Not because of anything he said in court, no. The court was concerned with his show of narcissism, arrogance. Durst just wanted to play lawyer in his own movie. The proceeding was more of a hearing to lay out the parameters of his inevitable release at the age of 21. And so, even though he'd showed nothing but concerning behavior while incarcerated, Durst was released. Like I said he would be. After six years of jerking off on people in juvie. And pledging to later track down any female who'd ever slighted him. And brutally rape them, kill them, paint them. Then take his time with the body. Use a knife as a phallus like how he'd done in the end with Grandma when she'd gone rotten. Again, where's the man we've dubbed Durst? Where is this 30-year-old pervert who killed his grandma then trimmed her golden years down to golden days? Where is this completely unremorseful, narcissistic, sexually deviant, homicidal time bomb? Well, for all I know, he's the guy who cuts my lawn poorly. But for certain... In the eyes of the justice system out here, it's none of your fucking business. Hi, buddy. Hey, it's bedtime stories. A morbid bouquet. The year is 1947. The country 
America. The average annual wage is 3,000 bucks and a gallon of gas is 15 cents. There are plenty of people on the side of the road who are happy to chip in on that expense in exchange for a lift. Cars are expensive and the transit system isn't yet considered a necessity outside of the cities. As a result, it is absolutely no big deal, considered common practice, really, to hitchhike in this time. You're not a punk kid, a drug-addicted drifter. You're not a psycho on the loose from a local mental hospital. You're just a regular Joe on his way to work or a woman caught in the rain coming back from the grocery. You're a young married couple trying to get out of the sticks for an evening so you can have a proper date together. The car that picks the newlyweds up is driving a truck. Melvin, a.k.a. Teddy Carr, appears to be running smoothly at first. But once they're flying down the road, there's no question that something's unbalanced. Teddy Carr needs a tune-up. He has felt a little off ever since, well, ever since he first started to think of women as prey, which was when? Well, which was probably after the first time he was told no by one. But there's more to it than that. Something deeper, deep-seated, as they say. As deeply seated as the hitchhiking couple are now in the back, their pointy asses and shoulders indenting Teddy's upholstery in a subconscious attempt to retreat as far as they possibly can from the dark, withering, bad vibes that are pouring from their frightening chauffeur. He is amped up, furious. Not just now, but always. And there have been no relief until only recently. The off feeling has been manifesting itself turning itself on, so to speak, in the form of stalking and maybe the occasional rape. It had started a couple of years ago when he'd entered his 30s. Teddy mysteriously had lost the ability to control himself when it came to women at this time. If he saw one he liked, he simply found a way to take her. No excuse me, ma'am, no, ah, shucks, I was wondering if maybe, no. Fuck all that. If Teddy wanted it, he took it. And as of late, he's been wanting it a lot. And the road has served as a kind of nursery for him, littered with stray flowers just begging to be plucked. The couple in the back are nervous. They've been trying to make small talk with the driver, but he's not responsive. He's just driving, fast, out into the woods, far from the road they'd thumbed him down on in the hopes of a ride to the city. To be fair, he never said that's where he was headed. When they climbed into the back of the pickup, they'd been thankful and then too busy talking amongst themselves to notice that he'd never said a word, just turned up the music slightly. A Frank Sinatra tune that seemed completely out of place in the old truck on this desolate, dusty road. And now here they are, along for the ride, a ride that has now taken them deep into the woods with a man they've never met or even to this point spoken to. Teddy pulls over once he feels they are in a secluded enough spot and speaks for the first time. Get out. Get the fuck out. The young groom is bullied to the back of the truck at gunpoint while his new bride begins to sob. The ominous jingle of metal precedes the terrifying sound of cuffs clicking shut, one to a wrist, the other to the trailer hitch. Then Teddy returns to order his primary target out of her seat and onto the dirt road. It is a peaceful summer's evening, and the woods are alive with the incessant hum of insects. But when Teddy reefs up the girl's skirt and roughly begins raping her in full view of her beloved, the screams from the anguished couple render the immediate wilderness mute. When it is over, 
Teddy throws the girl to the ground in disgust, then uncuffs the limp arm of what can only be described as a traumatized, broken boy at this point, and drives away, kicking gravel and dust over the two crumpled figures, who quickly scramble to embrace one another, as the truck turns around to illuminate their grieving pose before deserting them to the darkening wood. The insects and occasional birds soon resume their mindless buzzing, humming, and chirping as if they'd paused in reverence for the evil act. The couple then stand. The young man picks a flower for his girl, but she doesn't want it. They begin to walk. Together. Together, but somehow now, apart as well. They report the incident, sharing a few remembered characters from the truck's plate, along with the make, and Teddy is questioned about the monstrous claim that is made against him. He simply denies it, and the case is eventually dropped. Again, this is 1947. Things were a little different back then. Now, I should be clear that this is a true tale. You can assume going forward that every dead time story is based on truth, unless otherwise stated. The details have been imagined, but here at Tier 13 we work with what we have, and in this case what we have is an old newspaper article dated April 21st, 1977, and a few witness accounts, bits and pieces shared by family and friends of this runaway car. Teddy would stay off the radar for the next 20 years. The only information I could find about his activity, his movement during this time, is that he worked on the road, perhaps as a salesman, doing God knows what in his spare time, raping, maybe even killing women. I presume. And that may not be too far-fetched a presumption considering the mountain of unsolved murders thought to have been committed by roaming serials through the 50s and 60s. Teddy Carr likely did his part. In fact, it would be far-fetched to assume that he wasn't responsible for more than a few dead women left to rot by roadside. Considering his documented behavior when he finally resurfaced in 1962 at the age of 50. Teddy settles down with purchase of a small auto repair shop in a suburb of Indianapolis and begins to show how odd he's become after decades of being all over the map. Literally. He does not fit in, and it quickly becomes obvious to those who cross paths with the mechanic that he's a slime ball, a real nasty piece of work. There are soon rumors amongst the local women, whispered warnings to never request an oil change at Teddy's repair shop, for he'll take that as invitation to flirt and outright paw at a lady with his greasy hands. A dimly lit character of the Teddy Carr saga, only known as Calvin, reluctantly steps from the shadows of history at this time when he takes on work at the repair shop and soon quits after witnessing what he suspects to be the aftermath of a double homicide involving his short-term boss Teddy and two local women, a mother and daughter of questionable character in these times, questionable by 1960 small-town standards and that they enjoyed a party, a daily shift as barflies at the local watering hole that usually ended with the duo taking a man or a couple of men home with them. Lois Williams and her daughter Karen maybe thought they were working old Teddy Carr, using the creek for his money, for drinks. But when they underestimated his wrath, his potential for violence, they disappeared. Calvin would share that on his last day of work at Teddy's Auto, he had arrived for his shift to find Mr. Carr bloody and exhausted, scratched, bruised, and horribly hungover, slumped like a vagrant in front of his own establishment. Calvin roused his employer awake and informed him that he was going to call the police. This snapped Teddy to attention. No, 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 don't do that, Cal, please, it's all right. 
Just got jumped on the way in this morning. I don't want any more trouble. That's just, please, leave it alone. Calvin, confused and a little peeved that Teddy would let such a thing slide, enters the shop to see if there's any damage or tools missing from the shop, and is surprised to find Teddy's car in the lift, doors and trunk wide open, dripping water onto a heavily puddled floor. He works through that day while Teddy heads home to recover. But later, when he hears of the disappearance of Lois and Karen, two women he's familiar with from their frequent visits to the shop and open arguments with Teddy about money and sex, Calvin decides to remove himself from a situation he doesn't feel at all right about. The bodies are never recovered, and Teddy is questioned, but never charged. It is widely suspected that the mechanic is guilty, that he killed the two. But no body, no crime, and life tentatively goes on though business slows down for a while and Teddy uses the lull to renovate his basement and maybe implements a couple sacks of questionable material for insulation. It is said. The years go by. Teddy marries a woman named Harriet who doesn't really stabilize the old pervert, the old rapist, the old, let's be honest, serial killer. I say that's, and that's unfair. I'm saying it, not you, but you will be by the time we're through here. I promise. There is an unsettling incident that occurs at this point in the timeline involving Calvin's wife that I want to share with you, but not right now. First, I think it's best to talk about how Teddy would wind up imprisoned through the early 70s, during what seems to me to be an example of what a journeyman rapist, killer, might experience as a midlife crisis. Melvin Teddy Carr is caught in Mexico with a 14-year-old girl, after being accused multiple times of trying to coerce young girls into, quote, abnormal sex acts in exchange for money. Also around this time, he swindles an 80-year-old woman out of her life savings as a means of paying for this little trip down south, I presume. But the party is cut short, and old Teddy receives a five-year prison term that he serves three years of. An early release, even though a guard discovers blueprints in his cell, layouts of homes, and brief descriptions of how Teddy would want to kill the occupants of said homes. Probably just screwing around, though. Teddy's an odd duck with odd habits, fascinations. Off you go, old boy. Try to get it right out there. Don't want to see you again. And Teddy does. He tries to get it right by not getting caught. No more screwing around with young ones. They talk too much or too little with shared company and draw suspicions. Nope. Time to head back to his forever loyal Harriet. Open the shop and keep to himself. But at night, while he tinkers in his garage, Teddy can't stop thinking about them. The girls. The girls at the bar, the girls on the road, the girls at home alone right now, husband non-existent or working. These homebodies, these poor lonely souls just about to pass their bloom, he wants to pick them. Pick them all. Can't let them go to waste. Collect them into a morbid bouquet. He tried, before the whole Mexico debacle, he tried with Calvin's wife. Had seen her on the street soon after Cal quit and started working nights as a janitor, of all things. Christ, he could have swept the shop if he loved a broom that damn much, fucking moron pansy. Unlikely a man like that could be pleasing his wife, sexually, so. Teddy had hatched a plan to set Cal's old lady free. Tried to do it the right way. And as always, in these matters, when you don't just go out and grab it, you give it the option to say no. The option to keep on choosing nothing. The option to wilt from their peak all shriveled and old and dead. Now you just got to go out and pick them for their own good, really. 
Poor, hapless Harriet had heard the rumors. She knew what the other women thought of her, Teddy. Knew what the hussy of Calvin's had claimed happened back after Cal quit, back before that silly thing in Mexico. She didn't believe it, of course. Didn't believe her teddy bear had tried to kidnap the hussy. Didn't believe he'd called her, claiming to be looking for Cal when he knew damn well the man was at work and asked the hussy to check on his garage door for him. Didn't believe he'd checked into the hospital on account of some false breathing problem, then immediately checked out, then parked his car a couple streets over and called the hussy from the garage landline, claiming to be stuck in a hospital bed when he really lay in wait in the garage. Didn't believe it. Didn't believe the nurses and the neighbors and the hussy. Would never believe it. But last night he hadn't come home. And though she'd heard some ruckus out in the garage around midnight, he'd never come in. And now, at 4.30 a.m. on April the 20th of 1977, Harriet decides she should just go check outside, see if Teddy's got drunk in the garage again. Outside, she sees the garage lights on. It's sliding doors slightly open. And Harriet calls meekly out for Ted. The car sounds like it's running as she approaches. And when she swings her head under the door and quietly calls his name out once more... It doesn't register immediately. What she sees. Harriet gapes at the ghastly scene, frozen in her bent-over, hands behind her back, neck crane pose, a difficult move for a lady pushing 70 to hold for long, and she manages it for about 20 seconds before finally raising up, then dazedly shuffling back to the house, where she calls an ambulance. They find Melvin, a.k.a. Teddy Carr, in the concrete of his garage, face down beside his idling vehicle, with a gun in his pocket, a handkerchief in his hand, and a surprised look in his dead eyes. It's clear he tried to get out, but the fumes have been more than he bargained for, and the garage door had been too low to the ground. He'd failed to get out in time, succumbed to the same fate as his victims, 17-year-old Sandra Harris, 24-year-old Karen Nils, and her two-year-old son, Robert. Poor souls who come across the old man on the road and are now dead as a result of carbon monoxide poisoning. Murdered after Teddy had raped the girls and terrorized the boy. Stuffed all three in his trunk and driven home to his garage where he attached a vacuum hose to the tailpipe and closed the trunk on it. It would be funny if it weren't for the clutch of young women and toddlers sprouting from the trunk. It would be poetic that Teddy Carr should have died beside his car while doing what he loved most, popping a hood to see what the damage was. When you think of it, picture it, visualize an old serial killer past his prime crawling under his garage door at midnight, handkerchief over his mouth and nose to see if his victims are dead yet. You do damn near burst out laughing to think of the fumes hitting him square in the face when the lid opened of him turning in desperation for the door but no longer having the agility to pull off the necessary maneuver than dying. It's great stuff. But again, the clutch, the handful of dead, and God knows how many others that went missing by Teddy Carr's hand, collected in his fist over the many decades of his mysterious life, and gripped tight until he was finally forced to release them in a cascade of endless dead flowers most never to be identified. A morbid bouquet 